Hello and welcome to another episode of Right Care Baptist. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. And I'm Amanda Comer. I'm a nurse practitioner and the system director for advanced practice providers. And today we're really excited to have on Dr. Woodman to talk about the surgical treatment of obesity. Dr. Woodman, welcome to the podcast. Appreciate it, Amanda and Jake. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, hopefully I can shed some light uh, for some practitioners that may need some information on this type of uh, disease process and treatment options. Sounds perfect. So can you just start off telling us a little bit of your background and what you do? Sure. I've uh, been in practice, uh, private practice for now about 25 years, uh, all here at uh, Baptist and uh, uh, and some surrounding hospitals, but primarily here at Baptist. And um, I'm a general surgeon who has kind of subspecialized into weight loss surgery. And um, over the last, say, 20 years have uh, morphed into almost primarily a bariatric practice. Um, and today we have a uh, center of distinction uh, or center of excellence here at Baptist Memphis uh, due to our volume and outcomes and uh, uh, care plans that we have that seem to work well. So my practice is uh, bariatric surgery, uh, primarily some general surgery. And uh, we do quite a few uh, clinical trials, uh, most of which are winding up, and um, a fair amount of teaching. And that's it. So tell me a little bit more about the um, the Center of Excellence. So what, what distinguishes you as a Center of Excellence for this? Well, the American Society for Bariatric and Metabolic Surgery, as well as American College of Surgeons, um, polices, for lack of a better term, certain programs who actually apply for that designation. And there is a long list of requirements that you need to meet to be able to be labeled as such. And today it's not actually called a, a center of excellence. It's a, um, even though that term still applies, um, Everybody knows kind of what that means, but a center of distinction, which simply means that we uh, provide uh, good bariatric care. Uh, we have a well-rounded program. And most importantly, we have a hospital system that works with us and a hospital system that provides all of the necessary things that one would need to take care of a complex patient. For example, um, a well-staffed hospital an emergency room that's open 24-7, uh, in-house, um, you know, pulmonary doctors, um, a full complement of consultants, including cardiologists and so on, just in case uh, their skills are needed. Um, in addition, uh, they look at our results and our policies and success with follow-up with patients. And so uh, they look at our program from beginning to end. They even look at our office and the hospital for bariatric friendly uh, facilities. For example, our uh, exam tables have to be able to support a certain weight. Our OR tables, our instruments have to be a certain length. 
uh, chairs all have to be able to support certain size individuals as well as uh, the bathrooms. So um, it, it's a pretty exhaustive list of things that you have to be able to meet to be labeled as such. And, and here at Baptist, we've been a center of excellence for uh, at least 15 years. And so we've maintained that. And, uh, uh, you know, it's not just the surgeon, it's a partnership uh, of the surgeon with the facility. And we have very good facilities. And every time somebody comes and evaluates our program, they're very complimentary of the hospital itself. Well, that's great. So I want to talk a little bit about patient selection. We live in the, you know, in the southeast. You know, just about every patient we have is overweight or obese. Um, what sort of patients qualify for bariatric surgery? What do you look for? Is there anything they need to do beforehand before you can refer them to for a bariatric surgery? Well, obviously a very good question. And, and what that reminds me of is, first of all, the average patient that the hospital sees is obese. And so if somebody's coming in for a breast biopsy or for uh, an appendectomy or for a heart issue of some kind, they don't have to be coming into the hospital for any weight-related procedures or direct weight-related problems, but uh, a large percentage of the patients in the hospital are quote, bariatric, unquote. And so that's why the facility, it's so important for the facilities to be able to handle these patients because it's not just our surgery patients. It's every patient in the hospital. And that's part of being a center of excellence. Um, but who qualifies for surgery? Uh, getting down to your question, um, that can be pretty straightforward, but also um, the qualifications are stretching a little bit nowadays. Um, and it, it depends on your program, what you're comfortable doing, and so on. But in general, uh, in today's world, you generally have to be uh, have a BMI of 40 or more, which is for an average height patient 100 pounds overweight, or uh, a BMI of 35 or more with a comorbid condition. Now, there are patients that qualify who have a BMI of 30 or more routinely in today's world, and that depends on your comfort level, uh, your complication rates, and so on, and, and, and informed consent. So the, uh, the qualifications for our program are generally, uh, if you just look at weight, you have to have a BMI of 30 or more, which in round figures is about 50 pounds overweight or more, oftentimes with a comorbid condition. Other qualifications, can include age, and uh, an adult patient is generally, um, you know, 18 years of age or more. However, uh, we do routinely see adolescent patients between the ages of 15 and 18. So there are other qualifications you may want to ask uh, more specifically, but hopefully I answered your question. Yeah, and I wanted to get at, you know, do they have to try um, go through a, a formal diet plan or something like that prior to insurance paying for weight loss surgery? Um, you know, what sort of you know, pre-qualification activities do, do insurers require? Okay, well, you know, insurance requirements vary. And uh, we have patients who uh, don't go through their insurance and patients that go through insurance. Hmm. Uh, generally, the requirements for us as a 
practice are the same regardless. Now, there are certain insurances. So, so in other words, we don't change who we operate on based on what insurance somebody has or uh, if they're paying out of pocket or not. It's the same qualifications in our eyes regardless. Now, that being said, you're right. Certain insurances require uh, some things that other insurers don't. And that's a pretty exhaustive list and without getting into any particulars, because these things change every six months or so. Yeah. Uh, so one year, let's say Blue Cross may require a six month medically supervised diet, for example, which is I think what you're asking about. And that's a monthly visit with their primary care doctor or whoever they've chosen to do their you know, medically supervised diet with. And that has to be documented properly uh, and then that's one of the many elements that may be required for somebody to qualify for surgery. However, there is no proven benefit to any of those medically supervised diets once somebody's been obese uh, or become obese and has tried other methods and failed. So more and more insurers are dropping that requirement, although there are still some that require three-month diet and there may be the odd i think medicare may require a six-month medically supervised diet there are also certain insurances that we work with directly who know our track record and uh, know that we have good results and know that we choose properly and with those insurers we actually are able to bypass some of those type of requirements because they've been working with us for 20 years and they know that we um, have a low complication rate and we choose patients mm -hmm. wisely. Um, so uh, other requirements that insurance companies may have, um, and, and because most require it, we also require it whether or not somebody has insurance, but uh, everyone needs to have tried and failed other weight loss methods. Uh, and of course, everyone we see has. I don't know if we've ever had somebody come through the door who's, let's say our average patient's 38 year old, our average patient is female, about 80 to 85% of our patients are female, although more and more males, and the average patient somewhere between 290 and 300 pounds. Um, but rarely will somebody who's 38, year old, 38 years old, uh, who's been obese for let's say 10 years, not have tried another method of losing weight. And that's why additional ones um, aren't gonna help. So um, usually you have to have tried additional methods, um, Everyone needs to see a nutritionist to help with the educational process. Everyone needs to see a psychologist um, for various reasons, but primarily to make sure that they're able to make adequate informed consent to having this type of procedure done, among other things. Uh, and there are other requirements, uh, which we can go on and on with, but uh, do you have any specific other questions about that? I don't think so. Amanda. Okay. No, but Dr. Woodman, can you tell me a little bit more about the different surgical options that are available? Sure. Um, and those slowly change over time also. So what was the most common procedure 30 years ago was not the most common procedure 15 years ago, which is not the most common procedure today. And, and obviously as medicine evolves, uh, other procedures, uh, come to the forefront, but the the main principles haven't really changed. There are two primary types of weight loss surgery. There's restrictive procedures, uh, 
and malabsorptive procedures. And most procedures really combine those two things. Um, now, the, the most common procedure, you know, 30 years ago may have been an intestinal bypass or an open gastric bypass. The most common procedure about 15 years ago was the lap band. And the most common procedure today by far is the sleeve gastrectomy. Um, and that's not just in the United States, but around the world. Now, there's still other procedures that are done. So a restrictive procedure generally is one that simply makes it more difficult to eat. Um, so um, someone may be satisfied with several bites of food or an appropriate portion of food. And it's important to, to note that we're not trying to make patients eat less food than they need. Uh, what these procedures do is help patients recognize how little food they really need and helps them to be satisfied with that small portion. Um, and then there's malabsorptive procedures, which uh, usually are also restrictive, but what they do is they prevent absorption of some of the food that someone's eating. For example, a gastric bypass procedure is partially malabsorptive in that we're bypassing part of the stomach and upper part of the intestines. So when someone eats wrong food, um, they're not necessarily absorbing all of those elements. The negative to malabsorptive procedures is that you also don't absorb a lot of the good things that you're supposed to absorb, including vitamins and minerals. And, and a lot of those patients, well, all of them have to be on permanent replacement and um, even on replacement, faithfully, some of them can still develop problems. So uh, there are other procedures out there that are, that are even more malabsorptive. And we don't favor those because Although we've done uh, well over a thousand gastric bypasses here at the hospital, we stopped doing them about 10 years ago in favor of the sleeve gastrectomy. And part of that's because once you start doing a malabsorptive procedure, you're rearranging someone's God-given anatomy. And we're arranged a certain way for a certain reason. Uh, and when you connect the small intestine directly to the stomach, for example, to create malabsorption, you're also creating uh, potential hernia spaces. Uh, you're creating uh, malabsorption. Uh, you're creating uh, really an ulcerogenic operation. So these patients are at risk for the rest of their life once they've had a malabsorptive procedure of some terrible complications. And when we say the rest of their life, uh, it can be 25 years after their gastric bypass where they show up with a problem. So we've weighed uh, the pluses and minuses of all these procedures. And today we prefer the sleeve gastrectomy, which is an effective restrictive procedure that really also has some metabolic components to it. So hopefully I was able to answer your question. Uh, what procedures are available there's restrictive and malabsorptive no that's really great and i want to talk a little bit more about the complications in a second and, and some of your results but um are 100 percent of your patients the the sleeve now or do you how do you decide which procedure to do well for starters we educate patients on all of their options uh, including not having surgery um, including medical treatments, including lifestyle change, and including surgery. 
So patients have the option of doing all of the above or any of the above. Um, however, the vast majority of patients that come to our office have already done a fair amount of research on the subject and they know what they want when they get here. And we require that every patient watches our online video and seminar before they come in. And so they're pretty well up to date on what's available. Um, so patients can choose whatever they want. So as far as my practice is concerned, it's evolved over time from doing open gastric bypass to laparoscopic gastric bypass and lap band procedures to um, some endoscopic procedures to sleeve gastrectomy. And, and it's been a slow transition from one to the other over 20 to 25 years. So today, uh, we feel that our, the best thing for our patients is a sleeve gastrectomy. And the vast majority of patients are good candidates for that. There's very few patients that aren't a candidate for a sleeve gastrectomy. Now, if we find a patient who is uh, set on having a different type of procedure like a gastric bypass, or if they're not a candidate for a sleeve gastrectomy for one reason or another, then we'll refer them to a surgeon that may be able to uh, do the procedure that they want. So, you know, we, we kind of had an epiphany 10 years ago uh, or an awakening, whatever you want to call it, where we realize that, you know, our gastric bypass patients are at risk for the rest of their life for these problems. And um, they can be very difficult to deal with. And it's also something that these patients have to live with forever. I think maybe we'll stop doing those. And so it was just a decision I had to make as a someone in private practice taking care of thousands of patients. And uh, in our experience, sleeve gastrectomy is the safest procedure. And it has at least equivalent results to the other procedures. And um, they are by far our happiest patients. That's great. So tell me more about that. How happy your patients are. Can you tell us a little bit about your success? Sure. Um, and success is something that, uh, you know, we get spoiled with because we see it here every day in the office. But success is in the eye of the beholder. Um, and um, you have to think about some of the other procedures and non-surgical methods that are out there and how really unsuccessful those are. Now, when somebody has bariatric surgery, it's out there in the open for people to see and look at. You know, when someone has um, you know, cancer and they have a recurrence, it's looked at very differently than obesity. When someone has um, uh, coronary artery disease and they have a cabbage and they have recurrent coronary disease because they continue to say eat improperly or whatever the reason might be, it's looked at very differently than obesity. So obesity and the results of bariatric surgery are scrutinized uh, differently, uh, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, so what is success? Well, it's really uh, something that a patient can decide for themselves what or themselves what they think success is. And our, our average patient will lose 70% of their excess weight. 
that's 70% of their excess weight. Some patients lose 40% of their excess weight. Some patients lose 120% of their excess weight. And when I say excess weight, that means if somebody's 100 pounds above their ideal body weight, the average patient that we have will lose about 70 to 75 pounds. That's if they weigh 100 pounds overweight. Now, it's also a little bit confusing because the average patient who thinks they're 100 pounds overweight is almost always 200 pounds overweight. So uh, we always have to look that up with the patient so that they really know where they are. And that's a whole nother discussion. So what is success? If a patient that, that weighs, um, let's say our average size patient is 290 to 300 pounds, or they're 300 pounds, and they lose down, and they're five foot eight, and they lose down to 210 pounds. Well, that person may be the happiest person in the world. Uh, their uh, their life has changed. You don't have to lose um, a lot of weight, even though that person did, uh, to have a major change in your comorbid conditions and your, your overall health. Um, you don't have to lose 100% of your excess weight. Remember, the average person that, that, that's walking around the streets is obese. So... Um, when this person who's 300 pounds may get down to 210 pounds, that person uh, may be the happiest person in the world and they feel amazing. Uh, on the other hand, we may see somebody come into the office today who's 210 pounds and 5'3", who wants to have surgery. Uh, so, um, but the average person that we see loses about 70% of their excess weight, which is excellent. Uh, when we first started, very few patients would lose much more than that. And, uh, you know, there's doctors out there that argue that most patients, they've never seen anybody lose 100% of their excess weight. Every single clinic we have, for example, yesterday we had post-op clinic. We saw 68 patients uh, post-op yesterday and multiple patients are losing 90 to 100 or more percent of their excess weight. So success is maybe measured as, uh, well, I lost 40% of my excess weight, but I'm no longer diabetic. And uh, that was the most important thing to me. So uh, success can be measured in many different ways is the answer to your question. And the average patient is extremely successful. All patients can be successful. It just depends on really compliance with lifestyle change. So hopefully that answered your question. That's the hard part, lifestyle change. Yeah. yeah. No, that was very helpful. Um, and I did want to talk a little bit more about what you look for in follow-up. You know, I, I know you said y'all don't do the uh, bypass anymore, uh, but, you know, as an internist, when I refer patients to, you know, for bariatric surgery, that was always something that, that worried us. Uh, and, you know, keeping up with the vitamin deficiencies long-term was, you know, always, it shows up on our boards every year. Um, but what what do you look for as far as complications of you know the sleeve or for gastric bypass that you no longer do anymore? What should we um, as medical staff be looking for? Very good question. And uh, all of us are going to be seeing patients who have had bariatric surgery and uh, have to be aware of what those complications are, particularly people that are in the emergency room. Uh, most of the time when somebody who's had bariatric surgery shows up to an emergency room, their problem isn't related to bariatric surgery, but they're looked at a little bit differently. And of yeah. course, that's the first thing on their mind. Oh my God, that person's had a gastric bypass. And it, and it, and it should be 
near the top of your list, but it's usually not why they're there. Now, a gastric bypass or a related procedure like a um, you know, biliopancreatic diversion or duodenal switch. These are some other procedures that really aren't done in this area much, and those are, uh, it's a whole other subject, uh, but those are further malabsorptive procedures. But the things that you look for, and even though I don't do that, do those procedures anymore, we still have to be alert and aware and take care of those patients mm-hmm. because We've done about 1,200 or so gastric bypasses. Those patients can come back any day, 25 years after surgery. So we're still dealing with them. So um, number one, uh, as far as surgical complications, uh, these patients develop marginal ulcers. Uh, you know, uh, like I said, we their insides are rearranged. Their stomachs are now connected to their small intestine. Uh, so acid is bathing the small bowel and it's not built for that. And so ulcers are not uncommon at all. They're very difficult to deal with. And uh, when they are identified, um, there are certain things that need to be done, and they often present as a perforated ulcer. Um, If, as a PCP, you're seeing somebody with, you know, gnawing upper abdominal pain who's had a gastric bypass, more likely than not, they have a marginal ulcer. Uh, It can be other things. But you got to make sure that patient is taking some type of acid suppression for the rest of their life. And oftentimes they're not. They cannot take aspirin products like BC powders, which is the most common thing that we see when patients having symptoms. And of course, smoking is probably the worst thing that leads to marginal ulceration. Um, Internal hernias is uh, another common complication which occurs when you rearrange somebody's intestinal tract. And uh, there's almost nothing you can do to prevent that from happening. It's going to happen in a certain percentage of patients, and it can happen for the rest of their life. Early recognition of that and from a, is the key. And from a PCP standpoint, an emergency room and a surgery standpoint, somebody with a gastric bypass who has a bowel obstruction is not one that you want to watch. It's usually one that needs to go to the operating room. Mm-hmm. Um, malabsorption, malnutrition, and uh, you know nutritional deficiencies with specifically iron, calcium, and B12, those are the three things that are absorbed in the duodenum that's bypassed uh, during these malabsorbed procedures. Now, um, of course, in the immediate post-op time point, you know, the first three to six weeks after surgery, both the sleeve and the gastric bypass have certain complications, and any bariatric procedure uh, has these. And in the immediate post-op period, you need to worry about a leak from the staple line, which, knock on wood, is is unusual, but they happen. Um, um, you need to worry about uh, VTE, probably the single most common complication that occurs. Um, and, uh, you know, we have our patients up out of bed walking immediately. We have them on heparin in the hospital. And anyone that I take care of that has a history of it or has a BMI above 50 will also go home on Lovenox. Um, but you have to be very aware that those are potential complications. Those are going to occur even if you do everything correctly. Uh, and it's amazing how many bariatric patients we see who've not had surgery, who've had a history of a VTE. And um, in the immediate post-op 
time uh, you can have dehydration. And there is one thing that, you know, if, if patients don't keep up with the minimal amount of intake that we tell them to keep up with. Uh, but there is one thing I'm glad, and I'm glad you asked, and, and, um, and it's something that all of us need to be aware of in the first, say, two months after surgery is something called thiamine deficiency. Mm -hmm. And it's something we read about in uh, medical school, probably, and it may even be something that we've seen on a test. But most medical professional, professionals have never seen it in real life. Uh, and it occurs, occurs much more frequently than anybody knows. Um, thiamine is uh, critical to cellular function, the Krebs cycle, brain function, and we all might know that or get that on a, on a, on a test if it's multiple choice, but identifying a thiamine deficiency is something that can be very difficult, particularly if you've never seen it. And uh, I encourage ever, anyone who's listening to look it up. But when we go to the emergency room or talk to a medical physician, they say, yeah, I've heard of thiamine deficiency. It happens in alcoholics. Well, it happens in bariatric patients, not infrequently. And it's currently one of the most under-recognized things, at least it was for the last few years, but now it's kind of on the forefront of our thinking. So thiamine uh, is one of, is probably the primary nutrient that is not absorbed that, that is uh, not stored in any significant amounts in our body and after about 10 days um, it becomes depleted and once it becomes depleted uh, it actually has some real effects uh, ultimately ending up in uh, symptoms such as Wernicke's encephalitis and so on uh, but uh, I had a patient uh, when I became first aware of this, she developed uh, some ataxia and um, nystagmus. And um, I had an astute uh, medical colleague who I consulted to, to speak with him about her, and he diagnosed it immediately. And we gave her a uh, bolus of thymine, and her symptoms were immediately resolved, with, literally within hours. But these patients present with oftentimes nausea and vomiting, which are normal symptoms in a post-op patient. Uh, but you can see this in a cancer patient or somebody that's had any kind of intestinal surgery or somebody that's had any kind of illness that's had an inadequate intake for more than a week or so. And um, ICU patients in particular. And this is not something that's included in TPN routinely. You have to ask for it because um, my patient I actually had on TPN, uh, but it wasn't automatically part of it. So my patients, anytime a bariatric patient hits an ER for any reason, they get a banana bag. And what a banana bag is, is a liter of uh, saline with 500 milligrams of thiamine, um, uh, two milligrams of folate, and a multivitamin, something we're used to giving alcoholics who come in in withdrawals or symptoms of Wernicke's. Other things, so so have a very low threshold for hitting somebody with a ton of thiamine. You cannot overtreat it. You cannot give too much thiamine, uh, but the benefits are uh, remarkable. Um, never give someone who has had poor PO intake uh, a dextrose solution. 
before replacing their thiamine. Yeah. You'll make it even worse. And these are things that we learn about in medical school, but you don't ever see it. But it's something that's a lot more common today. So uh, if if I had to have one take home message from the uh, podcast or this talk, it's to try to make sure everyone's aware of thiamine deficiency and look it up because it's real and it's happening. And, uh, and it most of the time goes unrecognized. Well, Dr. Woman, thank you so much for, for coming on. I know you got to get to the OR and we've already taken too much of your time this morning. Um, but uh, thanks again for for updating us on, on this topic. I know I learned a lot and could ask a lot more questions. Um, hopefully we'll have you back to talk a little bit more about it in the future. But thank you and, and thank everybody for listening to Right Care Baptist. Remember, if you follow the link in the show notes, you can redeem this episode for CME credit. Thank you all.